My name is Steve Burdick, and I'm one of your elders here at Bridgeway, and I, um, I'm the guy who played college golf at Stanford, and I uh, got to play with a guy named Tiger Woods. He was a freshman when I was a senior. I got to teach him a few things about the game of golf, and he's done quite well and excelling at those things. And uh, the Lord kind of took me through a journey after college and led me into ministry, and now I work with a ministry called College Golf Fellowship. I minister to college and professional golfers and get to merge the worlds of golf and ministry together. But it is a real privilege to be here this morning and be able to continue the series of Being Jesus. And we are going to transition in this series as we turn now from Jesus' actions and his miracles and all of the things that he's been doing to show his kingdom and the power of his kingdom to now one of his most famous messages, the Sermon on the Mount. And we get to launch into this sermon over the next several weeks and we get to kick off today with the Beatitudes. And I have to be honest with you, when I was asked to preach a few months ago on this date, I didn't know what the series was going to be at, and then Lance told me it was going to be the Beatitudes. And I, and I kind of thought, I was a little bit disappointed. I'm like, everybody knows the Beatitudes. That won't be that exciting. I mean, I've read that. I've, I've kind of done that thing. And, and I was like, ah, oh, what am I going to teach on, on the Beatitudes? And over the last couple of weeks, as I've unpacked it, and I've dove in, and I've studied, and I've prepared, isn't it interesting that God always gives you the passage that you need to study the most. And God has convicted me and challenged me and encouraged me and allowed me to go much deeper into my own journey of faith and understanding what God's kingdom is all about. And so I get to share that with you. And I hope and I pray that that will be new, new revelation, a fresh revelation for us today as we dive in here. So let me pray and then we'll get going. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each one that is here. God, I pray now that you would pull away all distraction. God, that you would pull away any of our preconceived ideas of what this passage is about. God, that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, and that you would send your spirit into this place in such a way that you would touch, that you would encourage, that you would challenge, and that you would sharpen each one of us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Please pull out your Bibles and the sermon notes, and uh, we're going to dive in here. It's Matthew chapter 5, page 809 in the Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 5. As we get going, I want to kind of put yourself into the shoes of a first century Jew. I want to show you some pictures of what it would have looked like in Israel at this time. And I want you to envision yourself as a poor, crippled person living in the small town of Cana in the first century during Jesus' day. If you were that first century poor crippled person, you wouldn't have been able to participate in any of the social or religious activities of the day because you were considered unclean. You would have been an outsider looking in. Your entire life would have been full of discouragement, wondering why you were born this way, wondering if God even cares about you. You've been told you're not worthy of God's acceptance. You're not worthy of his love. You must have done something wrong to deserve this. You wonder if God could ever have mercy on you. And then you hear about this traveling preacher, this traveling miracle worker who's been touching people and healing people. And that's what we've been talking about. People's lives have been turned upside down by the touch of this Jesus of Nazareth. And as that crippled person in the first century, you wonder, could I get close enough to this Jesus? Could I, could I get touched by him? Would my life be changed by him? And you've heard that this Jesus is back at Capernaum. It's only 15 miles from your home in Cana. And though you're crippled and you don't even know if you can walk 15 miles, you think it might be worth it. Maybe I could just make it that 15 miles and get a chance to hear Jesus or be touched by his power. And so you do it. You set off on that journey and you head towards the Sea of Galilee, 
heading eastward. And here's some of the pictures of what the scenes would have looked like. That's the current day city of Cana. I was in Israel just a couple of years ago with Bridgeway. I got to go over there with my wife. And so here's what you would have seen. Keep going to the next one as he walked through these valleys of these lush agricultural areas in northern Israel. Keep going. And you go up and over this ridge and you go down to the next one, to the valley. And you look out to the Sea of Galilee, which is out there in the distance. And you keep walking on those crippled feet, wondering if I can see this Jesus guy. Keep going. Oh, look, there's a McDonald's actually in Israel. That wasn't there during Jesus' day, but I thought it was cool. I'd take a picture of it just to show you that it is there. Let's keep going. There it is, the Sea of Galilee, overlooking the city of Capernaum, where Jesus' ministry was rooted in during his days. And then you look up and out to the Sea of Galilee, and then you turn around, and this is what you would see. Let's keep going. Oh, my wife and I celebrated our 10-year anniversary. wanted to at least show you the smiles on our faces as we actually... We, uh, we, we recommitted our vows while we were there in Israel. It was a huge blessing. And then here we turn from Capernaum and you head up to the Mount of Beatitudes, the very place where Jesus spoke those famous words, the Sermon on the Mount. And here's the view looking up to that mountainside. And you can kind of see the natural amphitheater look and that's why he could speak out and people could hear from all over. And the next one, there's the church up on the hill where they commemorated that very spot. And one more. And I think we have one more. Looking back down to the Sea of Galilee, you can see this is where you would have been if you were that first century crippled person. As you trudged along on those crippled feet, wondering, can I see Jesus? And as he got to, to Capernaum, he sees the crowds all crowding around Jesus, as the scriptures tell us. And then he sees something. He's wondering, will I ever even get close enough? Probably not. And he wonders if I would be too discouraged and this whole trip was in vain as I walked this 15 miles and then he sees Jesus pulling away from the crowd walking up onto that mountainside and the scriptures tell us that his 12 disciples gathered around him and if you were that crippled person though very disappointed that you couldn't get close to him all of a sudden Jesus starts to speak from up on that mountaintop and you can't believe it but you can actually hear him And you can hear him speak and everybody around can hear because he's put himself in a place where all of those who have come can hear. And this is the words that you would have heard. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Aren't we familiar with this passage? Matthew gives eight beatitudes. If you look at Luke's gospel, it gives you four beatitudes and then four woes. They're a little bit different. I don't have time to unpack all of it. But these are the beatitudes. What are the beatitudes? Beatitude literally means blessing in Latin. What does that word blessing even mean? Blessing is not just happiness, which sometimes it gets translated as, but literally it's total and complete satisfaction, divine joy that God has poured out on his people, those who are living into the kingdom. You see, these beatitudes and this whole Sermon on the Mount isn't 
how to get into the kingdom. It's not the gospel. It's not to, hey, if you just received Jesus, now you can have this. This is the description of what it's like once you've entered into that kingdom. It's descriptive of those who are following Jesus and have entered into that kingdom. It's not the how-to. In fact, that's the whole point. Jesus is re-racking everyone's understanding about the kingdom. And that leads us to the fill in the blank in front of you. God doesn't think like we think. God doesn't think like we think. The Pharisees at that time thought, if I just obey all the rules and regulations and all the Old Testament laws, then I'm acceptable before God. And Jesus shows up and says, it's much deeper than that. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say, if you've even committed lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, if you've even gotten angry at a person, you've already committed murder in your heart. And the Sermon on the Mount comes to this famous statement. And Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. God doesn't think like we think. Because those people in that first century would have thought the Pharisees, they're the most righteous people we know. They look the best. They're blessed by God. They've done everything right. How could we have anything more than they already have as far as righteousness is concerned. And Jesus blows everything out of the water and he says, we have to go inward. We have to go to the heart. And he levels the playing field. And he says, the Pharisees are just as lost as those who are rebelling against the law because they think their self-righteousness and their pride makes them acceptable before God. And those people who have rebelled and are the sinners and the outcasts, Jesus says, Those are the ones who have come to seek and to save. And here we are today. And we're no different. Some of us think we can clean our life up and be acceptable before God. Some of us think we're too far gone and God can't accept us. And we have these beautiful beatitudes, these blessings, these benefits of what it means to walk in this kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Or the kingdom of heaven? The kingdom of God is when God is reigning on the throne. And what he wants to happen is actually happening. Jesus started his ministry by saying, Repent for the kingdom of God is here. You see, God's kingdom was perfect in the Garden of Eden when he created Adam and Eve and he put them into this beautiful garden, this beautiful place, and he walked with them. And his kingdom was intact because they had unbroken intimacy with their God. And then when they sinned, the kingdom was fractured and they were separated from God. And God says, I will bring you back. I will fix this problem. And the whole rest of scripture unpacks what God has done to restore and to rebuild that kingdom. And then in Revelation, the last chapter, when God says, the kingdom is finally restored. I am on the throne. I am with my people. There's unbroken intimacy between my people. There's no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And the kingdom is back. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he says, this kingdom is available to all. Where people can be in a place and they can experience the very blessing and the presence of God. That's the kingdom. And yet we live in this tension between the now and the not yet. 
And sometimes we're experiencing the kingdom and we're experiencing that intimacy and that blessing with God and other times we're not because it's not fully restored. But when we are a believer in Jesus Christ, he says, you have now been brought into this kingdom. Will you trust? Will you obey? Will you live in the fullness and receive the blessings of what this sermon is talking about? So let's dive into the first beatitude Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How could somebody be blessed and have divine joy and perfect satisfaction when they're poor? When they're poor in spirit. That's even harder to understand when you think of this word for poor. is isn't just somebody who's a little bit poor or, or doesn't have anything extravagant. But this is the word for somebody who's completely poverty-stricken completely bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, unable to save themselves, who looks outside of themselves and says, I need help. Because that's who these people were that he was speaking to. People who had nothing. And they were willing to say, hey, I need something outside of myself to fix what's broken on the inside. That's very countercultural to them, and it's very countercultural to us. And that's why Jesus was flipping everything upside down. You see, we live in a world where we love... To help ourselves. In fact, if you go to any bookstore, what do you see the biggest section of any bookstore? Self-help, isn't it? There's always a book to fix any of our problems. If you've got a marriage problem, buy a book. Six ways to fix your marriage. If you have a self-esteem problem, buy a book. Just have some power of positive thinking. If you've got physical ailments, here's some ways to, to work out and to strengthen your body and to look better. And the list goes on and on and on. The problem is we can't fix ourselves. And Jesus kicks off this whole sermon and says, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize that our problems are beyond us and we can't fix our own self. That's why I love Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of the other recovery programs. Their very first principle for change is what? We are powerless to overcome our problems. Now, I'm not a smart guy, but I think that they stole that from Jesus. I don't think Jesus got that from them. You see, Jesus knows that we can't fix our problems. We can't fix our sin and our brokenness inside of us. And when we recognize that we can't fix it, then we can look outward to the one who can. I remember when I was a senior in high school, and I was graduating, and I was going away to school at Stanford, and And I was wrestling with spiritual issues. And I had a guy that came into my life who actually led me to the Lord at that time. And he discipled me and he mentored me. And at that point in my life, I was a really good guy. I was really good at golf. I was really good at school. I was going to Stanford on a golf scholarship. I had the whole world before me. And I thought that I was good with God because I was a good person. And I didn't do any of the really bad stuff. And I thought as long as I just maintained my goodness, then I'd be acceptable before God. And he turned my world upside down when he told me what the gospel was all about. That it was about recognizing that good people don't go to heaven. But people who recognize that they're not perfect and that they need a savior and they need to look outward and they need to look to to the God of the universe who can forgive us and who can make us right with God. And that was when I put my trust in him and I realized my own spiritual bankruptcy. And that's really hard for good people. And most of us are like that. And we say, isn't just my good behavior good enough? And Jesus says, no. And that's why the Pharisees didn't like Jesus' words very much. And that's why a lot of us don't like these things very much. And so at the root of being poor in spirit, we need to admit that we can't save ourselves. 
And so this first beatitude says if we're poor in spirit, we will be in and living in the blessings of this kingdom. And I rewrote each parable or each beatitude. And here's the one that I wrote for this. It could be understand that blessed are they who understand their spiritual bankruptcy and utter helplessness on their own. For they are completely humble and realize they have no ability to save themselves or make themselves acceptable before a perfect and holy God, but instead have put their complete trust in God alone to save them, for they have been brought into God's kingdom and are experiencing the benefits of that kingdom. Are you experiencing that? Are you experiencing that blessing? The second beatitude goes even deeper. Verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That word for mourn is the strongest word in the whole Greek language for those who mourn the loss of a loved one. Those who have uncontrollable tears because they have just lost someone who they love desperately. The same word is used to describe Jacob when he thinks his son Joseph has been killed and he's died. I don't know if you've ever lost a loved one, but my father passed away when I was 23 years old. And he was in the hospital and he was dying of pneumonia. And I remember thinking, as the doctor said, he's probably not going to make it. And I remember praying for my dad that God would heal him. But then obviously thinking, if he didn't, I need to prepare myself. And I felt guilty because I thought I wasn't going to cry. I knew my dad was a believer and I knew he was going to go to heaven when he died. And I had hope in that. And so I thought, what's going to happen when my dad dies? And the crazy thing that happened when my dad died is I walked out of that hospital room and I fell to the floor in that hallway and I wept uncontrollably. I couldn't stop because something came over me. It wasn't me. I couldn't conjure that up. But it was this word for mourning and I grieved the loss of my dad. And when I think about this beatitude... What are we supposed to mourn like that? Are we just mourning in general? Are we mourning the suffering and brokenness of this world? I think that's a big part of it. Jesus, of course, talked about, and the Bible says that our hearts should break for the things that break God's hearts. Do we weep and mourn over the things that break God's heart in this world? And better yet, in this context, I think Jesus is taking it a little bit deeper and making it personal, and he's saying, Do you mourn like that over your own sin, over your own brokenness? Do you realize how serious your sin is? That we would literally weep over the things that we've done to hurt ourselves and the things that we've done to hurt others in this world. Do we realize how serious our sin was when it led Jesus to the cross and led him to hang on that cross because he loved us so much That he said, I will take the penalty that you deserve so that you don't have to. So that you can put your trust in me and be forgiven and be in a right relationship with the creator of the universe. You see, that's how serious God takes our sin. And that's how much he loves us. And I'm not here to put more guilt on you about your sin, but I want you to see how bad the bad news is. So you can see how good the good news is. It takes mourning over our sin. It takes grieving. As Paul says, godly sorrow leads to repentance when we turn away from that sin and we turn to God in trust. And we say, my sin is a big deal. 
It's beyond me and I can't save myself as the first beatitude says. And it's much bigger because it's in me. And not only is it in me, and not only does it come out of me, but the root of our sin is our self. That we have to understand that the root of everything is self. And we want to be independent of God. That's what Adam and Eve did, isn't it? We want to be like God. So they were tempted by the devil to be like God and they ate the fruit. And we are tempted in the same way every day. Every day we sin, we choose self over God. And we think, I knew more than God. I know more than God because this is going to give me pleasure. And God says, no, it's not. It's going to leave you empty. And then we realize that and we repent and we turn back and then we do it again and we say, what's the deal? And until we realize that it's not just the symptoms of our sin that we need fixed, but we need our very self fixed from the inside out, that's when God can heal us and comfort us and bring restoration. There's a well-known author and thinker named J.K. Chesterton. You might have heard of him. He lived in the early 20th century in England, and he was a famous author and writer and thinker. And the London Times posted this series, and they said there's obviously a lot of brokenness in the world. We see the brokenness everywhere. And they posted this question. They said, what's wrong with the universe? What's the problem with what's going on. We want everybody to respond to this and we're going to write and post the best responses. And G.K. Chesterton, being a believer, he came to faith late in his life. He wrote this one sentence that got posted in the London Times. The problem with the universe is me. The problem with the universe is me. You see, he understood the gospel. The gospel had gotten a hold of his heart and he realized, I can't save myself. I can't fix my problem with a self-help book, but I need to look outward. And when we look outward, what does God promise us? He promises us comfort, grace, and forgiveness. And that's why the second beatitude could be written as this. Blessed are those who mourn for the suffering in this world for, theirs, for their own sin, like those who mourn for the dead, for they will receive the comfort of God's joy and forgiveness to sustain them. Are you experiencing that blessing, that beatitude? The third beatitude, verse 5 of chapter 5. Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. With this beatitude, Jesus cuts a little bit deeper. And he talks about meekness. And we don't often understand meekness. We think of it as being weak or spineless or quiet or timid. Jesus is often defined as meek. And sometimes it gets translated in our Bibles as gentle. Sometimes it gets translated as humble. Of course, Jesus is gentle and he is humble. And that's the root of meekness. But I came across this definition by Aristotle. He defined a meek person as one who avoids all extremes and is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Doesn't that define Jesus? Angry when he needed to be angry. Righteous anger towards those who were turning the temple into Money changers, making money and profit off of people. And he says, isn't this a house of prayer? But he was never angry at the wrong time. Another definition I came across in my study was this. Power under control. Someone who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control and submitted to its master. It's the same word that's used to define a domesticated animal. When a wild horse was brought in and they had no control over that horse, 
What did the master have to do? They had to break that horse and they had to bridle that horse. And as they trained that horse, the incredible power that was available in that horse could now be harnessed and used for the good. Power under control. And isn't that what Jesus says? That he wants us to be meek. We have incredible power and the ability to do incredible things. But the question is, are we going to use our power or are we going to get our power under control? Submitted to our master, the savior of the world, so that he can use us for his glory in this world around us. Do we have every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control and submitted to him? That's really hard. In fact, just two weeks ago as we were moving into our new home, if you guys have ever moved, you know how difficult it can be to box up all your stuff, bring it over to the new house, unpacking. We've got boxes everywhere, junk everywhere, trying to navigate through our house. And we were getting some stuff done, and we're putting things here, moving things away. And one night I'm going to bed, and I'm walking over to the uh, sliding glass door to let our cat in before we go to bed. And me not being the wisest guy in the world, I didn't turn the light on. I decided to walk over there because I knew the pathway to where the sliding glass door was. And I was walking over the pathway. I found out that there was a big stack of frames that my wife had put right in that pathway. And as I tripped over those frames and fell to the ground and stubbed my foot and blood starts gushing out on the floor, I didn't have my instincts and power under control. And I yelled at my wife, Janelle, how could you put these things in my way? How could you do such a thing? And there were a few other things I said that I probably shouldn't have and I can't talk right now. I wasn't meek. I was the opposite of meek. I was angry and I had to go to my wife and I had to ask for forgiveness and I had to go to my Lord and I had to say, Lord, forgive me. Make me meek. Let me experience living in the kingdom. Let me experience the blessing of meekness. Because when we're meek, that's when we inherit the earth. That's when we get the blessings of this kingdom that God is establishing And that's why I wrote this, as this beatitude could be understood as blessing. Blessed are those who have every instinct, every impulse, and every passion under control and submitted to God, and who has the humility to trust God's plan above their own, for they will experience the fullness of God's kingdom on earth. Are you experiencing that blessing? The fourth beatitude says this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now that word for hunger and thirst isn't just like when we skip lunch and we're a little bit hungry. Again, these are the people Jesus were talking to who hadn't eaten for days. Some of them couldn't live unless they got a bite to eat. And that's the word that he uses here. Those who are hungering and thirsting, that if they don't get their hunger quenched, their thirst quenched, they would die. Are you hungering and thirsting not for food that this world offers, but are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? And the Greek grammar says complete righteousness, not just a little bit. Are you hungering and thirsting for total righteousness? Where does complete righteousness come from? It only comes from God alone. And that's when we find satisfaction. Because righteousness is being rightly related to God. It's being accepted by God. 
How does that happen? That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the great exchange. Remember, Paul talked about this. He said, Jesus became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He absorbs the penalty, the wrath of God that our sin deserved. And he didn't just sweep our sin under the rug, but he did something even better. He imputed to us, the Bible says. He actually gave us. He credited to our account his perfect righteous standing. And that's when we're made right in God's eyes, and that's when we're acceptable. Not when we pursue righteousness on our own. Not when we try to do a bunch of good things and obey the law and clean ourselves up. And that's when we think God will accept us. No, he accepts us because of what Jesus has done for us. That's the good news. That's who experiences satisfaction when they've received God's righteousness given to them. Tiger has been through a lot over the last few years. And I had the privilege of writing an email to Tiger when the whole story broke of when he did the things that he did and the whole story came loose. And I sent him an email and I shared the gospel with him. And I talked about how we long for things in this world that we think are going to satisfy us. And if you look at Tiger, he thought he had everything, didn't he? He had all the money in the world. He had all the trophies, all the fame, all the the blessings that this world had to offer. He had a beautiful wife and two beautiful kids, and yet he wasn't satisfied and he was longing for something more. And I said, you're always going to long for something more until you find the righteousness that only God can give. And it's only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I sent him that email. And the crazy thing is, is when he had his first press conference, when he came clean and he came to everybody and he talked about what went wrong, he actually mentioned me in that press conference, you guys. Do you remember that? I don't know if you guys saw this. But he said, I want to thank the thousands of people who wrote me emails during this time. (laughs) I was one of those guys. I don't know if he actually ever read the email. I hope and pray that he did. But something tells me that he didn't because when he talked about in that press conference, he talked about this. He said, you guys... I've turned away from my Buddhist roots and I need to return to those Buddhist roots because I need to look inward and I need to be able to not go after the things of this world that I think are going to satisfy me and I need to look inward to find satisfaction because that's what the Buddhist religion teaches and I'm not here to rip on Buddhism but it's very different than Christianity. We are never going to find what we're looking for inside of us. We have to look outside of us to find the only thing that's going to satisfy. That is God and God alone in Jesus Christ who gives us satisfaction in himself. That's why this beatitude could be written and understood as this. Blessed are those who long for perfect and complete righteousness that only comes from God. As those dying of starvation and thirst long for food and water, for they will be truly satisfied. Are you experiencing that satisfaction and that blessing? The fifth beatitude, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus is going even deeper now. And he's saying, is your attitude being transformed because of my kingdom, because of what I've done in your life? Because of the mercy you have received from me, are you able to give it to those around you? What is mercy? It's, it's not giving someone what they 
truly deserve, what their sin deserves. It's very different than justice. Justice is getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And grace goes a step further and it's giving you something that you don't deserve. Forgiveness, eternal life, the kingdom of God. And God does all three of those things. His just nature is satisfied because Jesus satisfied the justice of God by taking our sin to the cross. Then he extends what we don't deserve, mercy. We deserve the penalty and he doesn't give it to us. And then he gives us eternal life relationship with God, unbroken intimacy with our Savior. And he says, if you've experienced the good news of the gospel, you should be able to extend that to others. Not just forgiveness, but can you identify with their suffering? Can you enter into their pain? Can you see maybe what they're going through, that maybe when they hurt you and they wronged you, it was because of their own brokenness. And when we start to empathize, we start to understand that everybody has a story They have their own brokenness. And when we see that, we're able to give grace and forgiveness and not hold that against them and try and justify what we believe is right and how they've wronged us. A little while ago, my mom said some words to my wife that I didn't think were very kind. And me being the defensive husband that I was, I went to my mom and I challenged her. And then she got defensive and she challenged me back. And both of us put our defense mechanisms up and our pride and our self-righteousness trying to prove our own point. Put a wedge into our relationship. And my wife comes to me, the one who really was the one that was hurt. She said, are you really going to hold this against your mom and not forgive her? My wife is way better at this than I am. And she said, extend mercy, extend grace, just forgive your mom. And I'm like, wow, God, thanks a lot for convicting me even more. (laughs) And so I apologized to my mom. My mom apologized to me. And we looked in and we were able to see the other side and extend the mercy that we each needed to have reconciled relationships. Because that's what the gospel does. It brings us together and allows us to extend forgiveness to those around us so that we can experience the blessing of the kingdom of God. That's why this beatitude could be understood as this. Blessed are those who forgive freely and do not give people the consequence their sin deserves and who identify with the suffering of others for they will find others doing the same for them and will ultimately know that is how God and Jesus Christ treats us. Are you experiencing this? The sixth beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. That is really hard, because the Bible even talks about that our heart's deceitful above all else. What are our motivations? What are our thought life like? What are the reasons we do things? Are we pure in heart? That word for pure means unmixed. It's unadulterated. It's not being united with something that it shouldn't be. It's unalloyed. It means that it's a pure metal. It's not metals that are mixed together to make alloy. Is your heart pure, unmixed with anything else? Jesus just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think to myself, do I have a pure heart? No. I have mixed motives. Why do I do the things that I do? Even my good religious activities... Do I read my Bible for the right motivation or do I think God's going to bless me if I do it? 
Do I serve at the church? Do I give my tithes and offerings? Do I give a little extra for the building campaign? I hope you do that, by the way. But I do it out of a right motivation, a pure heart, because I'm so in love with the God who saved me and I'm so motivated by what he's done for me that I can't help but respond with a pure heart, with an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness, saying, I want to give back. Sometimes I struggle even giving a sermon and I wonder, am I doing it for the right reasons or do I want people to like me? Do I want people to say, wow, you did a really good job. Thanks for that message. For John Bunyan, a famous preacher once said this as he walked down the steps after preaching a sermon and somebody came up to him afterwards and said, John, that was a great sermon you just preached. And he responded by saying, the devil already reminded me of that as I was walking down the steps. What are our motives Do we have a pure heart? You know, we can't do it on our own strength. We have to look outward and we have to say, God, I need you to give me that heart transplant. I need to be born again. I need to be made new. And that's why the prophet in Ezekiel, speaking the very words of God, but God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I, God says, will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart And I will give you a new spirit and put it within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from you. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, which will call you to walk in my ways. We don't get these things backwards and think, I need to start doing a bunch of good stuff, which gives me a pure heart. We get a pure heart from God when we say, I can't do it. And he deposits his heart, his spirit within us, which gives us the motivations to respond in the ways that God responds so that we can receive the blessing of this beatitude, which could be understood as this. Blessed are those whose motives are absolutely pure and unmixed because they have been given a new heart by God, for they shall one day see him. That's the kingdom. That's the promise that we will be with God in heaven forever, living in unbroken intimacy and relationship with him in his kingdom when it's fully established. The seventh beatitude says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What's a peacemaker? It's one who brings peace, right? And promotes peace. Well, what kind of peace are we promoting? We're promoting God's peace, shalom peace. Not just the absence of conflict or the absence of trouble, but total and complete satisfaction in our soul. The blessings and the benefits of these beatitudes, that's what peace brings us when we are rightly related to our God. And so he says, blessed are those who bring this good news to others. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, the Bible says. We are his ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Have we been so transformed by what God has done in our lives that we can't help but share this with those who are hurting, with those who are broken, who are in desperate need of a savior, who are in desperate need to have peace with their God? And when we have peace with our God, that allows us to have peace with one another. And we are peacemakers by promoting that same peace. Because when we have peace with God, there's racial reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. There's no more class differences. Religions are broken down. Jews and Gentiles have come together because God is making peace between 
our fellow mankind? Will we be peacemakers and receive the blessing that could be understood as this? Blessed are those who seek to share how people can find ultimate peace with God and peace with others, for they are living as God's children and reflecting His character. You see, when we're called sons of God, that's when we are reflecting His very character. And God says, I want you to be my peacemakers in this world. Will you do that? Are you experiencing this blessing? And the last beatitude says this. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't you love Jesus' honesty? He says these are the blessings of walking in my kingdom, who are living in right relationship with me. But you know what? If you do that, you're going to get persecuted. People are not going to like you. People are going to treat you differently. They may even kill you like they killed me. Are you going to consider it a blessing to be persecuted? 11 out of the 12 disciples died martyrs' death. John, the gospel writer who wrote Revelation, was the only one who didn't die a martyr's death. And you know why he didn't? Because they tried to boil him alive, tradition says, and he didn't die. Think about that. They thought, that's kind of weird. We better just kick him onto an island. And that's when he wrote the book of Revelation as he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And people have been martyred and persecuted for their faith all throughout the years. We may not experience that same type of persecution. And maybe that's to our shame that we don't get to experience the blessing that comes from that. As Polycarp, the first century disciple of John, wrote when he was being killed for his faith, when he would not sacrifice to Caesar and admit Caesar's Godhead. And when they asked him to recant and sacrifice to Caesar, he said these words, 86 years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So they brought him to the stake to burn him, and he prayed his last prayer. Listen to his prayer. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of my well-beloved and blessed Son, Jesus, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour. And they burned him alive. Paul says, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that goes beyond all comparison. Yes, we probably won't experience that type of persecution, but what is it in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods? Are you being persecuted? Because if you are, it's a blessing, Jesus says, and that's why this last beatitude could be understood as this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for living for Jesus. In his kingdom, for you can rejoice now because you can be confident that you will receive a greater reward one day in heaven because you are living like the prophets before you. You see, Jesus doesn't think like we think. God doesn't think like we think, and he's re racking all of our understanding of what the kingdom is all about. And so, as we close, I want to return to the image of that first century Jewish crippled person. 
as he heard these words being preached from that mountaintop by Jesus, he would have been absolutely blessed because for the first time he would have understood Jesus is talking about me. I'm poor in spirit. I've been mourning my whole life. I desire desperately to share this and be a peacemaker. I want what this kingdom can give me. And he would be able to say, I can't save myself. I need you, Jesus. And he would have walked away despite even not being healed physically. His heart would have received a heart transplant. And he would have walked away with total and complete satisfaction. Are we like that person? Or are we approaching God with our list of accomplishments and religious activities saying to God, you should bless me. I deserve this because look at how good I've been. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And my heart, my prayer for all of us is that we would walk away and say, these beatitudes describe me. These are my attitudes. These are the blessings that I'm walking in. And if we're not walking in these blessings, maybe we've never gotten the gospel or the gospel's never gotten a hold of our hearts. And I'm not here to judge your salvation, but I'm here to say, if these don't describe you at some level, and I'm not saying it's perfectness, I'm not saying that we can live every one of these out because we don't. But that's why we look to our Savior every day and we say, I need you. Forgive me when I fall short. I turn away from my sin. I turn away from myself and I turn back to you. And I receive the forgiveness and the grace and the comfort that only a good and gracious Savior can give us. We need to raise the white flag and we need to say, God, I need you. For I am the problem of the universe And I need you, Lord Jesus, to rescue me daily. May we surrender to him and find his satisfaction completing us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the good news, the good news of the gospel. God, that we would never forget that it isn't just something that gets us into the kingdom. God, that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily so that we can receive the blessings and the benefits of your kingdom. God, take the focus off of ourself. Humble us and let us look to you. Because satisfaction is only found in you and you alone. May we let go of the things in this world that we think are going to make us happy. God, and may we look to you because you're good. Thank you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.